I literally had a weightless, dizzy sort of sensation in my body. And it was just, you know, trying to wrap my nine-year-old brain around this concept of infinity. It opened my mind to the, the incredible vastness of the universe, of life beyond death, of infinity. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and uh, somebody that many of you uh, absolutely uh, probably know because uh, he's he's a filmmaker and has done some incredible documentaries in particular and uh, just want to welcome you, Frederick Marx, to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, Frederick, as I mentioned, uh, is very well known, uh, particularly one film that many of you uh, may know, who are a little bit uh, in the middle between young and old, something like that. It was in the 90s. and uh, That's very generous. I would say old folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be generous because I'm an old folks. Well, it's you 30, know? the film's 30 years old. It is? Holy shit. Hoop dreams, everybody. That's the film. And I want to hear a little bit about it because I'm a huge basketball fan. And, uh, but let, how did, let's just talk about formative years because uh, I uh, always uh, talk to people that I've never met before on podcasts and find out what, what is the thing that was, a, say, a turning point to realize you are not just this ego, mind, desire, system, repel, attract, all of it? You know, for me, the great, arguably the greatest teacher in my life has been death. And the first big lesson around death arrived on my doorstep when I was nine years old and my father died suddenly of a heart attack. And he was seemingly there forever in my life when I went to bed and then gone forever the next day. And I never had a chance to say goodbye or any kind mm. of closure whatsoever. So a number of things happened. <clears throat> One, on the way to his funeral, uh, my uncle, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, well, Freddie, you're the man of the house now. And so that began for me uh, an inquiry into how to become that man. How do I become the man I want to be? And of course, I wanted to be, you know, a supporter to my mother, my older sister, and my younger brother. And I was nine. And of course, nobody stuck around to show me how to do that. So that avenue sort of led to all of my inquiry into what is mature masculinity mentorship, rites of passage, initiation, all of those things. And then the other avenue led me to Dharma. And it really led me into inquiry around the meaning of life and death. And I struggled so mightily, you know, as nine years old to try to wrap my head around death. And it was my first introduction to the concept of infinity. And I used to lie in my bed at night and I would think about 
dad's dead, dad's dead and death and he's gone forever. And I'd say forever, 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 over and over in my Mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. And then I'd stop and then I go, but wait, it goes on. And I go forever, forever until I began. I literally had a weightless, dizzy sort of sensation in my body. And it was just, you know, trying to wrap my nine-year-old brain around this concept of infinity. So, as early you recall as I that, could, huh? It, you huh? recall that the uh, the inner feeling of that? Like, oh, absolutely! In, infinity. <laughs> yeah, the the vast big, right? It yeah. scared the shit out of me, right? And mm. and it also underscored, of course, the fact the emotional fact of my father's not returning. But beyond that, it opened my mind to the the incredible vastness of the universe, of life beyond death, of infinity. So anyway, as soon as I could as an adolescent, then I started trying to understand this. And uh, I picked up the book by Alan Watts off my parents' shelf yeah. And read that when I was 14 or 15. I'm like, well, this this makes a lot of sense. This is pretty cool. Mm. And then when Be Here Now came out, uh, a couple of years later, I was, whatever, 17, 18. I thought, wow, this makes a hell of a lot of sense. So anyway, it, it, but it wasn't until 20 years later, I was in my uh, mid to late 30s, that I finally was introduced to a practice of Dharma. Uh, and that became instrumental for the rest of my life. What was that? Well, actually, practice. it was in New York City. And my, my first introduction to mm. practice was through the SGI, the Soka Gakkai International, mm. which is a Japanese form of chanting Buddhism. Typically, mm-hmm. it's the Heart Sutra and the Lotus Sutra that get chanted. Most people know it if they know it at all through the the singular phrase "Nam Myoho Renge." Kyo. Yeah, and Tina Turner. That's who I remember was doing exactly. That. Yeah, yeah, she's been a lifelong practitioner, and also Herbie Hancock uh, mm-hmm. as well. Right. Um, so anyway, it's a wonderful practice, and I, there are many things I loved about it, but uh, I actually got sort of stuck with the practice about five, six years into it. Interestingly enough, around the time that Hoop Dreams came out. And then I shifted into Vipassana practice for uh-huh. about four or five years. Yeah. And then first got introduced mm. to sitting meditation practice. And then around the year 2000, 2001, uh, I met my Zen teacher, uh, Jumpo Dennis Kelly, and so for the last 22 years or so, I've largely been practicing Rinzai Zen. Mm. Wow, that's quite a journey. Yeah, well, I always say I never met a branch of Dharma that I don't love uh, yeah, because right. I, I love them all. Yeah, It's just beautiful. The teachings yeah. are so rich and so inspiring for me. Yeah, yeah that's, and that's the beauty of us living in a human body at this time in human history, basically, we we have every possible offering in front of us on a silver platter. We really do. I mean, that is the beauty of, of digital communication. The downside, well, we all know that too. But yeah, well, and and now it's most essential that we practice, right? 
Because when you look at the world around us, you know, we've got collapse with a capital C that is already happening. And so what interests me about collapse uh, is how do we balance our understanding and holding of all of these horrible things that are happening to the planet and war and, you know, not just Mm. environmental destruction, but literally collapse of economic and political and social systems and still hold some equanimity and some sense of balance and even Mm. humor and joy in the face of all of this awfulness. So that's what really interests me of late. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's what you just described is what Ramdas represents, what he created with this foundation, the podcast network and all of it is exactly that. You just defined it all. And it it's a definition that uh, is a real responsibility for those of us that can uh, focus enough to care to do something outside of what's good for me. And, of course, that is the central theme behind Ramdas's is uh, what he conveyed over the last decades and still does through... Uh, through all these things that we do. So, Frederick, tell me a little bit. So, was Hoop Dreams the, was not the first picture you got involved with, right? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. I'd already been making films for about 15 years at that point. Um, But, you know, you were absolutely right. I mean, by far is my most successful film. And, you know, to this day, if I'm known at all, typically it's through that film. Um, but as did you want me to talk about yeah. how I got onto that? Or? Yeah, yeah. That well, I in love particular. basketball. It's pretty simple. Oh, huh? yeah. Okay, here we are. We've I got love something big time in common. Yeah. I, mm. you know, when I was a kid, I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, back then, the Warriors were the Philadelphia team. This was before they moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area. And Will Chamberlain was my lifetime hero. I mean, I wanted to be the next Will Chamberlain. So that was my dream, you know. I wanted NBA stardom, right? So um, I I only stopped about seven inches too short uh, and a million skills too short. <laughs> but otherwise, I could have been the next Wilt. So anyway, my my glory days ended when I was in high school, but. Um, but the, you know, the love for the game continues to this day and I still watch the Warriors. I'm going to watch them tonight. You know, I love this basketball team. I love the kind of basketball that they play. Uh, Not to mention what they represent as humans, both the coach, the owners, you know, the, the leaders of the team, Steph Curry. I mean, the, how outspoken they are for, for righteous thinking. Exactly. And it's interesting because there's a a big distinction between them in that way, between the other team that I so loved and was privileged enough to watch all of their games during the Michael Jordan years in Chicago. I watched the Bulls for 10 years as they won all those championships. And only on that team, there was Craig Hodges, who really stood out and said, you know, we need to use our fame for good. We need to do something with this platform that we have. And he kept mm. trying to get in Jordan's ear and get him to do something good. And he never succeeded. 
But anyway, so that's another reason why I love the Warriors. But back to Hoop Dreams, you know, it was in graduate school. I met my uh, foundational partner, Steve James, and we were we both had the dream when we were kids. He did as well. Uh, but we wanted to look at the difference between middle class white kids having the dream and what is it like for, you know, lower income inner city black folks. So anyway, that's how the project really got started. Uh, and it was originally going to be a half hour piece for PBS that blew up and became this three hour piece actually became two films. We actually finished a half hour piece. We called it Higher Goals, made it a separate film, and that went on to have its own success and glory, uh, but mostly in the TV and in the educational arenas. Yeah, yeah. And it's about, for those of you who don't know, and you can s still watch it, wonderful movie, two young uh, black kids from inner city Chicago and... You know, you filmed all that stuff of them in in their school, and uh, it was uh, the environmental atmosphere was so profoundly present in this film. I think it went a long way. Obviously, the story, but just that part of it gave people a sense of uh, of connecting with outside of this white middle class privileged bullshit. So from that, that, that to me is a, a very strong uh, perspective that this film represented. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. When we were uh, just finishing the film, we would do test screenings. And we would show it to uh, some lay people uh, who didn't necessarily care about basketball at all but basically had a, you know, a social conscience and were interested in race issues and class issues and related uh, things. And they would say, oh, uh, this is great, but it's too much basketball. You know, it's uh -huh. like, you got to cut out the basketball stuff. <laughs> and then we'd show it to basketball fans and they go, oh, this is great, but you got to, all that family stuff, the poverty, the joblessness, the school, the hell with that, right? When I heard that, Equal complaints from both sides. I thought we found it. We've got the balance that we want, and mm. in fact, it, it, it proved to be successful. Mm. Yeah, phenomenal. Uh, so now, the movie that I I just saw and uh, that uh, you had you know given me the link to and so on, um, that is absolutely incredible. Now. Uh, it's called Journey from Zanskar, which is a small village in what Bhutan. Well, no, it's no. in uh, northwest India. It's it's an ancient kingdom that is adjacent to Ladakh. Oh, Ladakh, right, right, okay, yeah. But uh, you you got to tell this story. I mean, I I want to know how in the world did you do what you do? I mean, so yeah, just here, give the premise. I'd rather you do the well. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, too. You know, the original idea for the film was something entirely different. So the original idea was the Dalai Lama's youngest brother, Tenzin Choigal, uh, known as TC, is the reincarnated owner of the seven sacred mo monasteries in Zanskar. 
And so he was scheduled for a rare visit to those monasteries. And this was the summer of, uh, was it 2004? My God, it seems so long ago. Mm. And so anyway, so I got a crew together. We got all this equipment. We land in Delhi and the monks meet us and they go, oh, well, TC canceled the trip. So <laughs> like, oh, okay, great. So what am I going to do? <laughs> so we fly to Leh, which is the capital of Ladakh. And I literally don't know what we're going to film. So I started looking around and I actually found a kind of a secondary story that I started filming that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, it's um, Helena Norberg Hodge's work. Uh, that she's doing in lay, which uh, I don't know. It's you want me to go into it? it it's an interesting sort of side story, but yeah, sure. <laughs> but well, she does beautiful work with the indigenous Tibetan people of mm. this region, and you know historically these people they're they're part of the Tibetan plateau, so they're all Tibetans. You know they speak Tibetan, they they practice Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but it was a historical anomaly that when the British left India in 48 and drew the modern uh, borders of the state of India, that suddenly they found themselves in what used to be a foreign country in India. So at any rate, that, that isolated them tremendously. But uh, so I forget the name of the, I think it was called the farm program. So basically what uh, Helena set up was this program for young people from around the world. They would come to lay and they would get placed in uh, with families who were traditional farmers in the region and learn not only organic farming and sustainable farming, but they would also learn the communitarian values of these beautiful Tibetan people. And in addition to that, she also would do uh, sort of reverse tourism and would take some of the uh, Tibetan farmers to the United oh, States really? wow. to show them, hey, by the way, all of that crap that you're being sold about how glorious the West is <laughs> and how rich everybody is, yeah. take a look. Yeah. There's a lot of homeless people. There's a lot of suffering everywhere. And there's not much community. So anyway, that's part of what I started to film yeah. until uh, Geshe, our chief monk, uh, on the way to Zanskar, and by the, and in those days it was at least a twenty-four hour car ride. Well, in fact, it still is, but it'll soon change. Um, and that's yeah. only for four or five months. Oh, that's year. right. They're putting a big thing from Manali through Ladakh, right? A, t a tunnel, the whole nine yards. I heard about bridges, all yeah. of it. Yeah, they've been building it for over twenty years. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> that's nothing. <laughs> And it's nothing, right? So anyway, we 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 draw, and he goes, "Well, you know, I've been I've been thinking I'm going to take some kids from Zanskar uh, out to Lower India to Manali, uh, so that they can learn Tibetan culture, language, and history because our own region doesn't teach it. There's a private school that does, but uh, seventy five percent of the local kids can't afford it." And so our own language, culture, and history is dying in Zanskar. Mm. So, uh, so I said, "Well, what are you planning to do?" And he goes, "Well, we, you know, we typically we walk over this mountain pass called Shinku Pass. It's about it's about seventeen and a half thousand feet, and then we walk to Manali." <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that sounds interesting. I guess I'll go. <laughs> 
So that became the film. So we, we filmed these two monks as they visited all of the village families and decided which kids they're going to take with them. Ended up taking 12 kids. Uh, the oldest was 12, another was 11. Most of them were four and five years old, leaving their families possibly forever just to go to these schools and have these opportunities that they otherwise would not have in Zanskar. You know, and, the, the, Frederick, I just because it just yeah, go. popped in my mind, the scenes when they're leaving these young children and the mothers, some of the mothers, and the way in which they absolutely wanted this opportunity to happen for their children. And yet it was devastating. It was like the, the beauty of them being able to sort of live on, uh, Ram Dass used to say this a lot, and I always quote it because it's, it's important. You can live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time. So they, were, they lived with the grief and the hope in the same moment, and it was conveyed beautifully. Just, yeah. Yeah, well, it's heartbreaking, right, that any parent should have to make a decision like that. You know, to try to do something to maximize their child's future potential, but to do it away from home, away from the family. Yeah, well, then it's uh, not like you're going to go from, you know, Hoboken to Newark or something. It's not happening. It's not happening. You yeah. can't catch a train and be back at night. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So, you know, and I, there were a lot of Western mothers who saw this film. And said to me, oh, I could never make that choice. Well, okay, fine. Lucky you. You know, reflect on the privilege that you have that you're not forced, in a sense, into making yeah. choices like that. Well, yeah. these parents are. And, uh, and so they made the best choice they could. And it was heartbreaking. And it was the right choice. And then ensued this trip that you actually filmed. I mean, I cannot believe it. I was... Everybody, listen, you got to see this film, and we'll, it'll all be in the show notes, links to it and all. But Frederick and his crew like got vantage points beyond where they were traveling through these, I mean, just incredibly um, difficult terrain, to say the least, 17,000 feet, never mind. And then you got, and you see the difficulties and and the potential dangers. Some there was people who died, right? I think not a, not from our party. No, but fortunately, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. But uh, w there were bearers. There somebody, well, I don't want to give away too much of the story. Yeah, right. right but okay. we had challenges crossing the pass, mm. and uh, and then the next day. There was a party of two people that did cross the pass, and one of them died mm. on the way crossing. And this was late October, so we were already Jesus pushing it. Christ. I mean, the snow was already three feet deep. And I'll tell you one story that's not in the film. You know, uh, I thought Geshe was going to die that day, and and he that is in the film. Um, but later that day, when we got back to our camp, I told him that. And he goes, yeah, I thought I was too, but I thought you were going to die first, Frederick. <laughs> and, and we both Thanks. laughed because it was really true. I actually was further back on the trail than Geshe himself was, and he was struggling mightily. I was thinking, oh my God, this is my last day on the planet. Well, 
At least I'm doing something I love. <laughs> really? Oh, my. Uh, okay, we won't give any more away. There's all sorts of different scenes that come to mind in, in, uh, in this film. But uh, just you dove into that. I mean, that took a bunch of courage, shall we say. I mean, you didn't know what you were going to end up doing. No, no, hardly. not at all. No. I mean, no, did you even have the right gear and all that for that kind of... Of course, these kids, you could see they did not have the right gear. And yeah, the we were, yeah, compared to them, we were extremely fortunate. I mean, we had, you know, triple thick, long underwear and gloves and things. And, you know, in the film, there is a, one of the fathers of the kids goes snow blind. Um, because he didn't even have sunglasses, for God's sake. Mm. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we, we were in extremely privileged position relative to them. Uh, but it's not to say that, uh, we were any more good humored <laughs> than they were <laughs> because they were laughing and rollicking and having a great old time. I mean, there were a few kids that were really struggling and mostly that you see it in the film. There's one kid who doesn't want to ride the horses. <laughs> yeah, he's afraid of horses. Uh, you know, and, and so is scared of the horses and so is crying a lot. But but most of the kids were having a grand old time. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's, you know, there a lot of people, I mean, I had a reviewer from a Canadian newspaper go, well, this film is a scam. It's just full of shit because everybody knows they could have whipped out their satellite phones and called in a helicopter and gotten rescued and nothing would have been an issue at all. And I'm thinking, I wish, <laughs> if only. <laughs> we did not have satellite phones. We did not ha even have a budget to have that kind of access, much less call in helicopters and stuff. Mm. It was like, no. It was this film was done on an absolute shoestring, and I had a crew for most of the track. It was myself and one other guy, one other person. You know, we could have used at least three more crew members, but I didn't have a budget for them. We couldn't afford them. It's you and one other person? Me and one other sound person. and video. And then I lost him at one point <laughs> for reasons I won't go into because it'll give away too much. He had to fly back to the States for another film. And so I had to do all of the shooting in Lay and Manali myself. Mm. I was a one-man crew. <laughs> Holy Jesus. Oh, my. Well, it's, it's fantastic, everybody. I mean, I, of course, I, I am very attuned to Tibetan Buddhism, and it's very meaningful uh, uh, for me. And uh, at the same time, I don't think you need to know anything about it whatsoever uh, to really get connected. I mean, just speak to, for instance, Frederick, speak to the perspective, because you said, you know, no matter that we had a lot more gear, we couldn't say that they, you know, they had, they had probably more humor, good humor, no matter what. Speak to that perspective, the difference between us and the them it's a different kind of us and them but you know what i mean yeah yeah you know the, there's such a, a deep um a layer of acceptance uh among the tibetan people up in uh, zanskar and ladakh that 
that that just goes back generations, right? And it's not something that we tend to experience here in the West. You know, we're we're all living under this illusion, this mind-numbing, mind-fucking illusion that somehow, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? You know, that consumerism is somehow a pathway to to deep and abiding success and happiness. And of course it's not, but, but, you know, we don't, we're not inculcated with these cultural traditions, which are so rich and so meaningful. Uh, so that's, that's one difference. And, uh, you know, I'll point to a scene too, where, you know, before we tried to cross the pass, we show uh, the two monks doing a puja in their tent. And Geshe makes it very clear. He says, you know, we're not praying for the success of our mission and of getting over the past tomorrow. We're praying for the well-being of all beings. That's who we're praying for. And and I just got a chill down the back of my spine saying that because it underscores that it's not about me first. It's about me together. It's about us. It's about all of us together. And they model that so beautifully in this film. So that inspires me a lot. Mm. They model that so beautifully as a culture. I mean, it's just uh, extraordinary, really. And just small, not so small things, but just being able to hang out with discomfort the way we cannot is, is extraordinary. And with good cheer. With good cheer, yeah. yeah. And eating the tzampa, you know, that was another difference. You know, basically, they would pull the tzampa, which is a ground barley flour, uh, and basically make stone soup every night. You know, that was their dinner. It's like, okay, well, you've got a vegetable, great. We'll chop something up. Oh, you've got some spices, cool. We'll throw it in. They'd make a communal soup, and then that's what everybody had for dinner. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, on the other hand, you know, Geshe made sure that uh, he hired uh, two guys to basically serve as cooks uh, for the for myself and my cameraman and also uh, the two monks uh, so that we would not have to worry about preparing food in the morning and in the evening. And we, you know, we got luxuries, you know, we had eggs and we had peanut butter and, and bread and stuff. So, mm. uh, and then in the daytime, we're all eat, we're pe- eating power bars. That's how, <laughs> yeah, that's right. kind of how we got through. <laughs> oh, it's oh, so incredible. Well, and I should probably also mention to your listeners, the Dalai Lama is in the film. Uh, and he basically is sort of bookends the story in a way. Uh, but it's all started with him because he understands how precious Zanskar is as this um, uh, unaffected small region of the Tibetan plateau that has not been taken over by the Chinese, right? It's on the Indian side of the border. And so the culture is still intact. And he made it very clear to these monks that it's like, you need to do everything in your power to keep the culture intact, to keep the language and the historical traditions intact. Yeah. So that's what sort of got them going on this whole mission. Mm. And then also Richard Gere was kind enough to step in and to 
uh, volunteer to narrate the film for us. Uh, yeah. So he did yeah. a beautiful job yeah. with that. Yeah. What's happened since then? Have you do you have you kept in touch? Yeah, you know, the, well, the, I mean, it's what is it now? You know, it's eighteen years, so the kids are all grown up now. Uh, you know, most of them have stayed in Lower India. Uh, they've been back to Zanskar maybe twice, in my understanding, to see families. Uh, the first time they came back again, underscoring the remoteness. You know, they were bussed in, but there was all kind of trouble on the pass and blah, blah, blah. They had a half an hour in Padum, the capital of Zanskar, with their families to visit before they had to get back on the bus and go back. So that was the first visit. Um, but since then, I think some might have made multiple trips, but I know of one group trip. That happened, and they were able to stay longer because they went uh, in the midst of summer. Mm. Uh, so, but you know, most of them have gotten educations and are becoming doctors, lawyers, engineers, uh, teachers. A lot of teachers, uh, and moving on with their lives and careers. Mm. Just wonder if they've feel any of the same commitment that the. Dalai Lama, of course, His Holiness expressed about keeping intact the traditions. I wonder. Well, that was the hope, right? And that, that mm. was something that I discussed many times with the monks is, you know, with their hope was that once educated, once, you know, um, introduced to the ways of the outside world, they would come back to Zanskar and become the teachers and the educators and and the professionals that the community needs to help sustain it. But knowing Tibetan language, culture, and history alongside Western. Yeah. And some, ha some have, I believe, but I don't know for sure. Mm. Right. And yeah, amazing movie, everybody. And it'll all be linked up in the show notes. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I want to, so uh, you're a very much a Renaissance man of my heart, actually, Frederick, because uh, you put uh, some of your creative juice uh, into uh, writing. And uh, I did see something that I kind of want to talk about. Um, and and uh, not just that, in service as well. I know that you're, you know, you've been involved with uh, young men in, in terms of related to initiation processes. Uh, but can I, I just want to read this thing. Okay. It's, it was in a, it, this is the, uh, and this is another thing we will link up, which is, uh, rights to a good life, right? Is the name of the book? Yes. And the subtitle is everyday rituals of healing and transformation. Right. So everybody, let me just read Frederick's, uh, just for a few paragraphs from his preface, which, Again, completely connects with uh, with what Love Serve Remember represents, Ramdas, and so on. We live in a culture that could be characterized by the absence of the sacred. Our education, our business, our healthcare, our transportation, our media and entertainment most often lack a sense of connection to the vast, tender, powerful, mysterious sacred nature of life 
And even when we have a personal brush with the sacred, when someone dies near us, when we take special time in the high mountains or connect with the moving work of art or are present for the birth of a new child, the compelling sense of sacred mystery can quickly fade as we resume our quotidian chores. The absence is exacerbated by our divisive political discord, our racial and economic divisions and injustice, by our unattended trauma, both individual and collective. Yet, underneath, when we get quiet and honest, there is an almost uh, there is in almost everyone a longing for deeper connection to ourself, to the earth, to the community around us, to life. The deep this deep connection to the sacred and to your own unique gifts and courageous place in the world is what rights to a good life and rites of passage remind you is possible. And uh, Well, it's very I, nice of you to quote the book, but I didn't write it. <laughs> what? That's Jack Cornfield. He wrote the preface. <laughs> I didn't read down to the bottom. Are you kidding? Jack wrote the preface? Okay. You know, you didn't have to say anything. You know, yeah. Isn't I, that gonna, great? <laughs> I listen, just... I, I'm not going to pass off Jack's beautiful writing as yeah, yeah, my own. Yeah. <laughs> I just—it's funny because I just came back from Maui, where we did a—we uh, did retreats with Ramdas every year there forever, and we're still continuing them. And and Jack has been at most of of this winter retreat, uh, and his wife Trudy. And uh, it's funny because what he said here. And I'm so sorry, everybody. Please excuse me. And I'm sorry, Frederick. I don't care, though. It doesn't matter. It came out through this thing, uh, you know, that you offered. And and the reality is it is all of us as one <laughs> moving moving uh, along the path together, really. But Jack did a... Um, he did one session where he connected with... Uh, the people attending the retreat, a few hundred, you know, uh, 350, 400 people, in which he exemplified exactly what he said in this thing. He brought the sacred into, um, he opened it up so that the, the, um, the sacred connected with the trauma. I don't know, there's got to be a better way to say that. He created a space by engaging with individuals around not just trauma, but around life stuff. You know, Jack is really incredible around, it's okay to be human. You know, I was quoting him at one other session. He was sitting in the room. I said, and that's Jack Cornfield. So we're doing the same here. And uh, yeah, but the reality of what uh, this preface opens up is really what I wanted to hear more from you about. And the your um, initiative to really uh, open this door, especially to young people, that we there is a, there is a way uh, to um, to bring the sacred into one's life, and to me, and a lot of what Ramdas represents is service intention and perspective and 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 that can really make a big change what do you th- what do you think 
Well, of course. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's a chapter in the book called Making Every Moment Sacred. Mm. And I talk about how, in a sense, I've been on a mission to understand how to do that ever since I was a kid. And arguably uh, from the moment uh, when my father died. Uh, and so I look at that and I, and I ask myself, and I talk about what it is I've begun to understand around how we need to reinvigorate our daily lives with the practice of self-created ritual in order to make mm. that happen. And it's not hard. And we don't have to follow long prescriptions in order to do that. Uh, we can do it very simply. And a lot of it, yes, has to do with how we initiate and mentor adolescence. Because for me, and again, this goes back to what I told you about not having a father, uh, I desperately needed to be initiated uh, as a teen into mature masculinity. I had no idea how to get there. And none of my uh, father, my, my, my father's brother didn't stick around to mentor me and show me. None of my father's colleagues at the University of Illinois stuck around and sh to show me who I loved dearly. Um, and so I had to sort of invent it for myself, uh, at, at least to a certain point in my life. And so I, I've always been looking for these ways to bring the sacred back into the everyday uh, and to make our lives, you know, that much more meaningful. And it, again, it, it's not that hard. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so the book is about the why and the how of doing that, basically. How how have you approached, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids related to even um, presenting the reality of what the sacred is. In practice, how have you approached it? Well, it's interesting because in my experience, most adolescents already have a sense of that. And they already have a sense of how they're being denied access hmm. to it. And they know that they're living in a world of illusion. And because their bullshit detectors are magnificent. Mm -hmm. And so they call shit when they see it. Uh, so they already, they don't have, put it this way, they don't have year after year of, uh, guardedness and protected layers that most of us adults have on, right? So it doesn't take much. So typically what I'll do, and when I work with young people is simply get to know them as deeply as I can, as quickly as I can. And I'll ask him, well, what? What matters the most to you? What do, what do you what do you really dream of uh, as a manifestation for your life? You know, what are you deeply passionate around? What makes you very angry? Because often that passion and that anger can be mm. right adjacent, right? Yeah. So so I'll, 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 it doesn't take long, and you, typically you can find out, and then from there it doesn't take long to sort of think, okay. Well, I, I put this organization, help put this organization together called Youth Passageways. And it's a clearinghouse of information designed for parents world over to come to, to figure out where do I go to get my adolescents initiated and mentored? 
where do I go? And it's even broken down by uh, modality. So if you want something wilderness, nature-related, great. We've mm. got something for you. Mm. If you want um, a, a rabbi who is doing bar and bat mitzvah practice, but with real transformational intent, mm. right? Which mm. is a little bit different from how it's been co-opted in the everyday. I remember. Pardon me? I remember. Yeah. Co-opted. Yeah. I'm still and then, so... And, you know, and Christian and on and on, right? All uh. these different modalities of of uh initiation and, and mentorship so they're all there on the site and then so anyway i know most of these people because i've studied with them and learned from them for years uh and i can recommend well you know maybe you want to spend a week in the woods you know with a group called the school of lost borders who are doing beautiful work with teens hmm. uh so anyway uh that's that's what I do, but it all starts with listening deeply. Hmm. Yes, it does on every level. Hey, you know, I I didn't mention this to you. This everybody out this this is a bit of a commercial, but there's nothing I can do about it. I, I have a hat uh, as director of Love Server Member Foundation, and we just put out a new book. You Are the Universe, young adult book. And um, I need to get with you, <laughs> Frederick, on this book. What it is, Ramdas Maps the Journey is mm. the sub subtitle. It just came out. And in it, uh, these uh, two twin sisters, Julie and Amy, put, and who have been long-term long -time, uh, students of Ramdas and knew the material quite well, they transcribed an arc from Ramdas, from his days in Harvard, all the way through identity and roles, and meet, going to India and meeting the guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and then doing the work that he's done in service and, and everything else that he has represented over these decades till he died uh, three, three years ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, and in it, it's sort of put together like Be Here Now. So the first part is these wonderfully edited Ramdas's story, like my story and be here now. And the second part is brown pages with beautiful. This is all uh, brought to a, a, a beautiful presentation with watercolor. The see, this is a uh, commercial with beautiful <laughs> watercolors and so on. Uh, one of the one of the girls is an artist. And then, so that's the brown pages in the middle. And then the end, all of the things that Ramdas recommended for people, as you just listed some of them in terms of the different practices that you've gotten into over the years. And so he presents that plethora of available means for people to find that different perspective and be able to get on the path. So uh, can I send you a copy, Frederick? <laughs> I'd love to read it. Absolutely. Please. And then what we'd love to do, I want to go even further. I want to send a bunch so that they can go to some kids. And I'd love to see what the possibilities are there for them to connect with someone like Ramdas. Because, I mean, I so many people to this day pick up Be Here Now and write to us and go, oh, my God, we just found out about Ramdas. And, you know, maybe a little psychedelic thrown in here and there as well. But uh, as part of it, it 
brings me back to the earliest of days, and I say, geez, the same thing happened to me. So amazing. Anyhow, um, we're, this is the kind of work that Ramdas really emphasized towards the end of his life. He would say, make sure next generation gets this information, these teachings. He wouldn't even call it teachings. He would say information uh, available to next gen and on the platforms that they go to, you know. And so we're on TikTok and, you know, got a, an incredible person who's an interlocutor for uh, Ramdas on TikTok. Uh, mm. It's pretty amazing. So mm. he was full bore into wanting this to happen. And this is just before he left, before he died, and made sure I was aware of that. I mean, of course, I was aware because we used to speak all the time, but made sure that it got executed. And uh, what I didn't really, I knew a little bit of your work here, Frederick, but not, I think it's to a much greater extent than I really realized. So, yeah. Well, and if I may, I'd love to share with your listeners a quote from Ram Dass about my first book. Yeah. Um, which was called uh, At Death Do Us Part. And it's a story about escorting my late wife to her death mm. uh, and my journey through the grief afterwards. Uh, she died uh, July 7, 2016, uh. and the book came out, uh, it was about a year and a half later. Um, and, you know, I felt so blessed to get this beautiful quote uh, from Ramdas. Most people know Frederick Marx from Hoop Dreams, Journey from Zanskar, and other fine films. They probably don't know that he's a longtime student of Dharma an ordained Zen priest, and a gifted writer exploring the terrain of the human heart. This book shivers with the frailties of what it means to be human, and folding loss in all its forms, finding a way through acceptance back to love. Mm. And, you know, I must say that for my part, I always used to say my life is very simple. It's about two things. It's about art and service. Mm. After my wife died, and after my journey through the grief, I realized I needed to add a third thing. And I said, it's about art, service, and love. And I really have to bow in the direction of Ram Dass in a way, too, for that. Because uh, he was always so beautifully open and unafraid and unashamed, you know, to talk about love, you know, and, you know, for me, that hasn't been so easy, but mm. it's getting easier now. Mm. And I, I, I recognize the importance for me of outing myself and saying that that's true <laughs> of me as well. <laughs> that's great. Frederick. You know, Sharon Salzberg, of course, or who she of is. Yeah. So we were doing uh, a retreat with Ramdas actually in, in Maui, and it was he was introducing at that time his last really great uh, teaching, which was um, loving awareness and getting out of this perspective of believing your story, your thoughts. You know, acting like the the this is all real, 
and everything else. Well, sometimes, once in a while, you may get a little break from that where you're not judging or pushing or pulling or grasping or, you know, so you move from there and you take a few breaths into the center of your chest and I am loving awareness. And you move that perspective away. This was his great uh, offering in the last years of his life, really. Mm. So we were doing something around that and Sharon was talking about the definition of love. It's very difficult here in the West. It's, it's, it usually denotes, not usually, 99.9, it's a business. I'm, I'm going to love you if you, if, if you love me. Mm. It's not going to happen if that, if that mutuality isn't happening. It's transactional. It's transactional. Yeah, exactly. And then, she's, and then Sharon said, and now the problem with love is when you talk about it, people think you're weak. I remember when she said that, I went, that is so horrible. <laughs> My God. But it's true. It's so true. Yeah. Well, and I would argue, especially for men, you know, mm -hmm. and having spent so much of my life looking at and trying to define and live up to mature masculinity, you know, that might be one of the toughest challenges, you know, to really embrace the, the, the importance of being a, a vulnerable, open heart. And from that place, uh, sharing love with the world and accepting love in. Yeah. I, I'm sure you know this, but uh, His Holiness, the, the Dalai Lama, has often, often said, our future and uh, for us to transform he didn't quite say it in these terms, uh, polarity and us and them. Basically, this is what he was talking about. Uh, you know, war, hate, all of it lies in mothers who are like my mother. His mother, apparently, was this extraordinarily compassionate human being. And he said that compassion, if, if our, if, if, our daughters are brought up in that atmosphere and they can embody that compassion and then it it goes forward from generation to genera generation that is our hope hmm. right and um beautifully said yeah it's so true yeah no absolutely and you see it in in the in your film the journey film it's it's really uh palpable there uh, you know i i just uh, mentioned just seeing those women and what they felt for those children leaving at the same time feeling wow this is a great thing it's happening for my child the mm. two things at the same time that kind of yeah that that's something we need to bring back into this uh, as much as we can into next generation and so I applaud the work you're doing, Frederick. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that's all she wrote as far as the sponsor's concerned. <laughs> it's like the 50s, right? Yeah, right. Ajax is right. proud to present. 
Oh god. Permache. No. Yeah. yeah. Don't leave home without it. Yeah. Uh <laughs> so happy to have you here. We've been going back and forth, Frederick and I, for for a while, and this is great. I'm really happy. Uh, and everything we've been talking about will be available to link to in the show notes. On you go to beherenownetwork.com/slash/mindrolling, and uh, yeah, you will. Well, and I'll just let your listeners know they can find me too. Yes, at my website warriorfilms.org. Yeah. Uh, do you have a new film coming, by the way? Well, I just finished a five-film series on veterans. Oh, yes. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. And if I may, I'll just mention briefly the, the one of the five. I, I mean, I, I think they're all full of love. But the one that might most interest your listeners is a story about 22 women veterans who hmm. come together for a four-month meditation mindfulness-based retreat. And they start out in a very alienated, very suspicious place. And we see over time how they begin to bond. And that sense of other begins to disappear. Mm. And they become a pretty bonded sisterhood by the end of it. Mm. So it's a that film, the whole series is called Veterans Journey Home. And that particular film is called On Black Mountain. Because it's named after a Tibetan retreat center that is in Sonoma County, uh, mm. not far from San Francisco, called yeah. Black Mountain. So you might want to look at that on the website, too. Yes, everybody. That website um, will be in the show notes. And, of course, it'll, there'll be links for you to be able to get to uh, the film that uh, Frederick's speaking to. Hey, thanks again, Frederick, for being here. And, uh, you know, I've already told you a million times how much I love that movie, Journey from Zanskar. Uh, exceptional. Well, great, thank great you. Work. I hope you'll get a chance to see some of my other work. Yeah, no, I'm going to ch check out this film that you just mentioned. That sounds fascinating, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's hear more from you in the future. Which I'd I know it. we will. I, I feel like we've got a lot more to talk about. So yeah. thank you, Agu. A real pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Thank you, Frederick. Everybody, we'll see you next week. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and enjoy the plethora of incredible teachers like Jack Cornfield, who I tried to get Frederick to sort of impersonate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell Jack that. That's great. Uh, <laughs> Oh, uh, wonderful. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>